Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 73, Revelation, the 144,000. And in this episode, we're going to look at Revelation 7, verses 4 through 8, which is a list of what John calls 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And taking our cues from the fact that this passage does, in fact, still reside in Revelation chapter 7, and as we've been discussing, Revelation 7 serving as the answer to a question posed at the end of chapter 6, we're going to take a very detailed look at just how references to the people of Israel relate to our understanding of the place that Christians hold in those who are able to claim the promises of the Bible And we will see how the fact that this list appears in the form that it does, believe it or not, does intend to communicate to us things that are true, not about Israelites, but about the Christians and about the church. And so I hope to walk you through how I think the New Testament makes sense of language like this, and particularly with apocalyptic language, the creativity that John is able to use and utilize with it helps us to continue to complete the picture of how the Lord intends to protect those who are his. And so I am excited to get into this with you, and I hope that you find this helpful. Let's just jump right in. As we begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 7 verses 4 through 8. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, the verses that I just read have, um, have made for lots of lively discussion and speculation over the years. Um, should we interpret this list literally? Well, that's a really good question. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, did this for many years, taking the 144,000 literally and applying it to a specific number of their members who would receive special treatment in heaven one day. Now, I've heard that they have since adjusted this interpretation, but I don't really have enough information to speak intelligently about it. Now, many Christians that I grew up with rejected the 144,000 as a limited number of specially treated Jehovah's Witnesses, but retained their belief that this was still a literal number, simply applying it to the way they applied all of Revelation, according to what they called the plain, literal reading of the passage. It says 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. These are a select group, then, of Jewish nationals who will be preserved by God during the Great Tribulation. The Christians have already been raptured from the earth by the time we come to Revelation 7. And that was that. What more was there to explain? Well, actually, there's quite a bit more. 
You probably noticed that I repeated verse 4 from last week's episode when I read this week's passage. And if you listened to last week's episode, you know that I applied God's seal on the foreheads of his servants to his Holy Spirit, the spirit that everyone who is in Christ receives. In other words, I very confidently applied the sealing of the servants of God directly to Christians, not to Jewish nationals. Now, that does not mean that I am anti-Semitic. I do not hate the Jews. Jesus was a Jew, and he came for the Jewish people. And so as a Christian, I am eternally indebted to the Jews, and I want the Jews to come to know Jesus. But my understanding of Revelation 7 also does not mean that I apply a wooden understanding to what some theologians call replacement theology, and that all the promises once made to Israel now just get applied to the church. In other words, that the church replaces Israel, hence replacement theology. You see, the truth is actually more nuanced than that. And already in Revelation, we've come up against it. For instance, in the message to the church in Smyrna from Revelation chapter 2, we read this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And then in the message to the church in Philadelphia, we read, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, if, if you go back to episode 61, Revelation, Pillars in the Temple, where I talk about the church to Philadelphia, I pointed out there that the Old Testament had promised God's people, Israel, that the nations would come to them and bow down before their feet and they would know that the Lord had placed his love and his affection on Israel. And yet here in Revelation 3 to the church in Philadelphia, because God's people, the Jews, were opposing God's chosen one, Jesus, and his followers, that God was going to make the Jews come and bow down at the feet of the Christians so that the Jews would know that God had poured out his love on those who followed Jesus. Those to whom Jesus is speaking, his followers, his lampstands, his church, were receiving opposition from the Jews, God's chosen people. Why? And what does it mean for our understanding of the relationship between Christians as God's people and Jews as God's people? Now, as I've just said, I do not hold to a wooden understanding of replacement theology. And the reason I don't is because of the problematic way it is generally spoken about. In my opinion, this way of thinking focuses its attention entirely on Israel and the church. And sadly, leaves Jesus out of the discussion. But Jesus is the entire point of the discussion. It's not as if God started with Israel and then when they screwed things up said, okay, scrap that, I'll focus my attention on the church. No, this is not an out with Israel, in with the church kind of idea. 
Jesus, rather, is the hinge on which everything swings. No one has been replaced, at least not in the way that many people think. Rather, as I attempted to explain in episodes 29, Recapitulating the Garden, episode 30, Recapitulating the Wilderness, episode 31, Recapitulating the People of God, and episode 32, Who is God's Family?, Jesus is the representative head of all humanity as well as the representative head of Israel. And so now, whoever is connected to Jesus and not Israel as a people becomes God's true people. Now, you may want to go back and re-listen to those episodes because they are central for understanding much of the New Testament. And this also accounts for how Paul can say to the Romans, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so those who have been circumcised in heart by the Spirit then do not replace Israel. Rather, Jesus is Israel. And he doesn't replace them. He represents them and stands in for them. And now all of the promises God made to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. So listen, listen to the way Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so if anyone wants to know how God has fulfilled all of his promises, many of which he made to his people, Israel, all they need to do is look at Jesus for all the promises of God find their yes in him. But did you catch what Paul goes on to say in the very next verse? God establishes us with you in Christ. Paul, of course, is writing to the Corinthians a Gentile city filled with many non-Jews. And he, and he says, God establishes us with you in Christ. Meaning that God offers to Gentiles what he had long promised to give to the Jews. Why? Because they are in Christ, who is the true Jew and the representative head of Israel. And then Paul says that God has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Fascinating, isn't it? That Paul uses seal language in talking of those who are in Christ, whom God has given the Spirit in their hearts as a guarantee. The exact same kind of language John uses to describe the servants of God in Revelation 7. And now we've come full circle. The servants of God, those sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, are those who are in Christ the true Jew, the representative head of Israel, and who, because of their union with Jesus, become Jews themselves. All of that to say, when John writes, and I heard the number of the sealed, 
144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Don't mistake those he's about to describe as literal Jews, as opposed to believers in Jesus. I am well aware of the fact that despite the many explanations offered in the New Testament regarding how believers in Christ become God's people, there are still schools of thought that like to distinguish between God's plans for his people, Israel, and God's plans for his church. They read books like Revelation looking for those distinctions, imagining that John is speaking about literal realities. But they too easily forget that in Christ, all of the promises of God, including things like a coming new temple, for example, find their yes in Jesus. This way of thinking, then, is also responsible for believing that since there are two different sets of God's people, then there must also be two different ways in which God will deal with them. And this leads, and has led, unfortunately, to the belief that there are also two different endpoints for each of these groups. The church will be raptured before the horrible events in Revelation are described, but that precisely 144,000 Israelites will be set aside by God to carry on his work to the rest of the unbelieving Jews. But this view simply doesn't make sense of the book of Revelation as a whole. What does make sense is the recognition that of all the people in the first century, as clearly evidenced throughout the book of Acts, who most persecuted the Christians the Jews were the front runners. This is why John writes about them as those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, their opposition to Christians who were followers of Jesus, Israel's true representative, demonstrated that they never realized just who it was God was calling them to be. When Jesus came, and embodied all that Israel was supposed to be, as well as the very presence of the God they claimed to know, they rejected him. And so instead of receiving the blessings God had always promised to bring them, they found themselves on the receiving end of the judgment God promised he would bring on those who stood opposed to him and his people. And this is why Paul and Barnabas speak to the Jews in Acts 13, boldly telling them it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. You see, the Jews saw Jesus, their representative head, the one who embodied all that they were called to be, they didn't like what they saw and said, no thanks, he's not, our, he's not our savior. And in that one decision, they judged themselves, Paul says, unworthy of eternal life. They didn't want the life Jesus had come to offer. And as a result, found themselves outside the people of God. Now, I have chosen to bring all of this up because some readers of Revelation hear the words, every tribe of the sons of Israel, and think that John must now be talking about literal Jews, but he's not. He lists 12 tribes, saying that 12,000 are sealed from each tribe. 
And so by his double use of the number 12, once in the 12 tribes, but also 12 in the 12,000, he's combining for us the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament and the 12 disciples from the New Testament. In fact, what's fascinating to consider is that in choosing 12 disciples in the first place, Jesus was simply calling a new Israel to himself. Christians, of course, can rightly be called disciples too, and so there is our connection. Disciples of Jesus, those connected to him and in him, become united with the people of God. Both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus can rightly be called the people of God. Those who do not believe in Jesus cannot, even if they're literal Jews. But it's important to recognize throughout the book of Revelation that these numbers are symbolic. 12 representing Israel and 12 representing the disciples of Jesus and then 1,000 which throughout Revelation clearly is a large number, but it's a number that is enhanced with symbolism in multiples. You can arrive at the number 1,000 simply by multiplying 10 times 10 times 10. And throughout Revelation, we'll have references to 1,000 years. We have references to you will endure tribulation for 10 days. And so even the fact that there are 144,000 is simply arrived at by multiplying 12 Old Testament people of God by 12 New Testament people of God by 1,000. And when you read through the Old Testament, this is actually where things get really fun, but when you see a list like this, anytime the tribes of Israel are listed in the arrangement similar to the one we have in Revelation 7, it is always for the purpose of counting Israel's warriors through a census. All able-bodied men ready for war. Take your Bible when you have the time and look at Numbers chapter 1. It's a very clear example of this. And as I have referenced numerous times so far throughout this series, the concept of war is central to John's vision. We saw this with the four horses in chapter 6. Conquest leading to bloodshed, leading to famine, leading to death. Wars are unleashed on the earth when human kingdoms are treated as divine, resulting in the loss of life. This is because the kingdoms of this world define conquering in a power over, kingdom of the sword kind of way. But this is not how the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, defines conquering in God's kingdom. Rather, he defines it as a power under, kingdom of the cross, as evidenced in the lion being seen as a lamb. And so we ought not to think that God's sealing of his servants is for the purpose of enabling them to fight in a war in the same way that the kingdoms of this world do so. Again, Paul is helpful here. Listen to his words in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Or listen to Paul's more familiar words to some of you taken from Ephesians chapter 6. 
your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now, listen to what Paul is saying here. We're not waging war according to the flesh. We're not waging war against flesh and blood, that is, against other human beings. The weapons we use aren't what everyone else is using. Our enemies are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places and cosmic powers over this present darkness, not other human beings. And the armor of God that we are given, thank God's protection of us, is so that in the evil day, we'll be able to stand. Well, this is what's being described in Revelation 7. Remember, one of the dominant motifs used throughout Revelation, particularly when a trumpet call is heard, is to rally the troops for battle. Well, here we have just such a rallying cry and organizing into tribes, the servants of God prepared for battle. But even a brief look at the list of tribes given to us in verses five to eight highlights the fact that no other listing of this kind appears anywhere in the Bible. And for those who want to claim that this list is literal, there are just about as many interpretations of how John arrived at this list as there are commentators attempting to make the argument. For starters, Joseph was never listed as one of the 12 tribes. His two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who were born to Joseph while he was living in Egypt, get folded into the tribes, one of them replacing Joseph and the other standing in for Levi. But in this list in Revelation, both Joseph and Manasseh are listed, while Ephraim is not. And strangely, Dan is absent from this list, while Levi, who was never counted among the 12, appears in this census list for the very first time in the Bible. What in the world is going on in this list? Well, Christopher Smith offers a very clear, I think, and persuasive explanation. And again, reminding you that one of the dominant themes in Revelation is that God's people belong to every tribe and language and people and nation, not just the Jewish people. And believe it or not, that very reality, that the people of God belong to every tribe and language and people and nation, that very reality is being communicated through this list of what appears to be literal Jewish tribes. And let me see if I can sum up for you Christopher Smith's argument. Here it is in short. In Genesis chapter 35, after all of the sons have been born to Jacob by his two wives and by the two maidservants of each of his two wives, the names of his sons are listed for us in Genesis 35 verses 23 to 26. If you are unfamiliar with the Old Testament, it might help you to know that Jacob fell in love with a woman named Rachel, agreed to work to, for her father for seven years in exchange for her hand in marriage. After working for Laban for seven years, Laban tricks Jacob and on the night of his wedding gives him his second daughter, Leah, um, actually who was his firstborn, but it was the, the son that Jacob wasn't as interested in. And Jacob ended up marrying Leah 
and getting upset with Laban. Laban said, work for me another seven years and I'll give you Rachel. So Jacob does that because he loved Rachel. He loves Rachel, not so much Leah, marries them both, has two wives. Leah has a maidservant named Zilpah and Rachel has a maidservant named Bilhah and they are slave women and they do Jacob's bidding when these two women end up fighting with one another over trying to earn the affection of their husband and Rachel is barren and she uses her slave women to have sons and so on and so forth. And in Genesis 35, when the sons of Israel are listed, we're given Leah's sons first, then Rachel's, then Rachel's servant girl's sons, and then Leah's servant girl's sons. It's interesting that in all of the lists of the tribes, typically Reuben, excuse me, being the firstborn, is actually dropped down a notch in this particular list in Revelation 7, and Judah is thrust to the front. It might help you to know that Judah was the fourth-born son, but is in fact the son from whom the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, will come. And so by thrusting Judah to the front, the author here, John, is reminding us about the fact, number one, symbolizing the reign of Jesus from the tribe of Judah. Reuben is not knocked down a peg, but four of the names, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh, were actually of the, the servants, at least Dan, Naphtali, and Gad, were part of the servant girls who were thrust to the bottom of the list in the re- re- repeated list of the sons, but they get thrust to the top honoring these women as as Dennis um as Dennis Johnson says in his book The Triumph of the Lamb just allow me to read a, a brief section here he reminds us that the sons of these concubines technically slaves of the competing wives Leah and Rachel pressed by their mistresses into service as surrogate mothers are promoted from the end of the line to positions 3 through 6 above six of the sons of the wives, Leah and Rachel. The elevation of these descendants of women who were outsiders to the covenant family signifies the inclusion of the Gentiles among the bondservants of our God. Dan, however, is replaced by Joseph's son Manasseh because the tribe of Dan became notorious in Israel's history for leading the northern kingdom into idolatrous apostasy. And intertestamental Jewish literature has Dan associated with the Antichrist. Thus, the order of the tribes in Revelation 7 symbolizes the reign of Jesus from the tribe of Judah, the incorporation of outcasts, and the exclusion of idolaters from the covenant community that God shields from his terrible wrath. Now that is an insight that you may not get in your first read-through. And you certainly wouldn't get if you were hung up on interpreting these names literally. But I'd like to add one more perspective onto Christopher Smith's insights, which I think are outstanding. I think they're consistent with the nature of the book. I think they're consistent with the fact that in Smyrna and in Philadelphia, Jews Jesus is willing to say have actually aligned themselves with synagogues of Satan as opposed to what they actually were intended to be. This gives me a green light to realize that the Jews, as they're oftentimes recognized when they stand opposed to the people of God, don't always need to take center stage the way some interpreters of the Bible think that they should. 
But I'd like to add one further note, and that is that the tribe of Levi was never even listed as one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, it might interest you to know that the Levites were the priests, and they were responsible for the serving and guarding of the tabernacle and eventually the temple. And so they were never given any land as their inheritance was the Lord himself. So being set aside in this way, then the tribe of Levi wasn't listed in any census of Israel's warriors because they never fought in war. Their role was worship and service in the temple, working and keeping the two verbs used to describe priests from Genesis chapter two. So for John to place them in this list here may be to remind the sealed servants of God that we are all priests serving the Lord in his temple. And remembering once again that these sealed servants of God are being protected by God in the midst of earthly wars and loss of life, it is a reminder to all believers that our role as a kingdom of priests very well may put us in harm's way, just like it did with Jesus. And so what I think is happening with the 144,000 is that John is symbolically representing Christians, his kingdom of priests. And by identifying them in this warlike census, he is explaining how it is that they can both be protected by God and engage in the battles they will actually need his protection in. Remember, the martyrs are crying out for justice Christians have actually lost their lives in real war. And the kings and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, when they see the coming of the Lord and his lamb, cry out, who can stand? God's protection offered to his servants then is his answer to both of these cries, to both of these questions. It's a brilliant use of language. And it's something that only apocalyptic language can do. But as I looked at last week and reminded you of, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 sums it up. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And He is calling His troops to battle. A battle and a call to conquering that will not result in the bloodshed of others, leading to famine and leading to death, But as we will see next week when we wrap up Revelation 7, it is a conquest leading to one's own bloodshed and the bloodshed of Jesus, which produces thirst-quenching waters of refreshment, which ultimately leads to life. We are the kingdom of priests who are also God's um, warriors for battle. Only the way Paul describes it, we are not battling flesh and blood. The people that we interact with on a day-to-day basis are not our enemies. And we need to know the battle that we are in and the protection that we are actually granted by God in the midst of that battle. That, I believe, is a faithful reading of Revelation 7, 5 through 8 tying in what we know about the sealed servants of God residing in the presence of God through his spirit 
and recognizing that we are called to battle by our Lord to represent him, include in the outcasts into our family, to recognize that our savior from the tribe of Judah is at the top of the list. And then to realize as well that the priests have now been included into the battle, not to fight the war the way the world does, but to intercede for the world on its behalf. And so that's all the time we're going to take for this week's episode. Again, I am thankful that you are continuing to tune in each week. Please leave me a review or a rating on Apple iTunes if you haven't yet done so. Just take five minutes to scroll down to the bottom of your app and click the stars and give me a, a one to five star wherever you feel this this podcast deserves that type of a rating and then if you could take a few moments to just write a review that will help others to be able to find this podcast as they're searching for podcasts that are might be worth listening to thanks again to those who are supporting this podcast um, with a little bit of a financial gift that is greatly appreciated you can also find a link in the show notes of each episode of this podcast to where you could go if you would like to support me in a similar fashion Again, I greatly appreciate your input, your feedback, your comments, your thoughts. Um, Please feel free to reach out to me in any way that you'd like. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Until next time, have a great week.